regardless of who you are, to think rightly about what a father really finds joy in is going to help you immensely. It's going to help you minister to those who are hurting. It's going to help you minister to those who are on the brink of abandonment of truth because they are scared about what's going to happen at the workplace if they declare what they really believe in the Scripture. It's a time for you and me to become people of immense grace, understanding the grace of God's message that calls us to speak the truth in love. We need to be devoted to the truth. Now, around here, we would say we are deeply and passionately devoted to sound doctrine. And if that's true, it will be shown in our love for one another and it will be shown in our love for the lost. The church that's devoted to sound doctrine doesn't just get things right in terms of orthodoxy. They get it right in terms of orthopraxy. They practice truth by extending kindness to others. They look for opportunities for relationships. They model that in their home. They find themselves, especially men, being increasingly humbled by the kindness of God's truth, by the greatness of his wrath against those who reject that truth, and they are increasingly willing to be men of passionate humility. They realize that the opportunity in the home is a short one. And it must be given every ounce of energy. In Proverbs 23, 24, last week we began with this passage that tells us that the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. We live not only in an unrighteous age. We live not only in a nation led by unrighteous leaders. We live in an unrighteous world. You were born, listen, hear me and believe me and embrace this reality. You were born into the same unrighteousness. So don't have this idea, I hope you don't, that you somehow have achieved a better grade of morality because you're not embracing that which is clearly and obviously sinful in a public way. In some instances, in many instances, there are those who simply hide their devotion to wickedness better. And we call that hypocrisy. We call that Phariseeism. That's what Jesus calls it. The call for you and me today from this passage, recognizing that a father's joy is found in his son's righteousness, is an individual call for each of us to examine our hearts and lives and ask the question, are we worthy of emulation? Are we genuinely setting the example that we are calling others to? Are we willing to remove the log before attempting to delicately remove the speck in someone else's eye? We told you last week, point number one, a father's joy in his child's righteousness. I want you to see two truths in this text. The first is a father's joy in his child's righteousness. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. And we need to say here, we are not talking about earned righteousness. Self-developed righteousness. Self-righteousness. We're not talking about personally earned piety. We certainly are not talking about legalism. We are not talking about the father of the self-righteous, man-centered, pride-inducing theology, but righteous on God's terms. See, God defines righteousness. 
God is the one uh, who gets credit for the definitions of all things in the Bible, and we must, we absolutely must subject ourselves to his definition of those things. He rejoices in his righteousness, God does. The man whose son, the man whose child can be assessed as being righteous is the man who rejoices. If you were to do a survey amongst parents, what do you want for your children? What do you want to come of your children? I suggest that, that many would say, I want him to be a great baseball player. You know, I wouldn't mind him being a, an influential politician. I'd like him to become a doctor. I'd like him to become the best businessman he can possibly become. Nothing wrong with those things. But they're temporary. They don't last. And ultimately, they don't mean anything, ultimately. But what does mean something, ultimately and eternally, is to be assessed as righteous on God's terms. That will make a man rejoice forever. I watched my son knock the cover off a baseball when he was seven years old. That's pretty unusual. And I didn't tell anybody about it. Honestly, that's the first time I've ever said anything about it. It was three years ago. My fear was that I would become so prideful about that that I, I would put it on Facebook, and pretty soon I, you know, we'd be getting, getting offers for professional baseball and stuff. And Well, I don't want that for him. If that happens, great, fine. I'll ride that wave, and we'll enjoy it for a few years, and then we'll kiss it goodbye. But what I do want for him is righteousness on God's terms. That is what you and I must desire and long for and work for in our children. I told you from 1 Peter last time that Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8, in this you greatly rejoice. And this is exactly what Solomon is saying here. The father greatly rejoices. What is Peter talking about? He's talking about those who greatly rejoice because they've been freely granted righteousness that's proven in their lifestyle amidst affliction. When persecution comes, and it's on its way. We've said this for a number of months, have we not? We were in the book of 1 Peter for a year and a half preparing for the decision that was made on Friday. Timing couldn't be better. By the way, to be in 2 Peter next, let me tell you why it is so timely that to be in 2 Peter over the next several months is and is going to be so helpful to us. What you're going to see happening is pastors are going to begin to waffle. Pastors are going to embrace this idea that, oh, the Bible is complicated. And many things you see in the Old Testament, you know, they weren't fair. And they're going to talk about slavery and say slavery wasn't fair, but it's condoned in the Bible, which is not true. And they're going to say, therefore, you know, this whole idea of homosexuality, it's probably it's just complicated. And, you know, just love people and let it go. That's going to happen. Those people will be clearly showing themselves to be false teachers. So to be in 2 Peter is going to be very helpful for you and me to graciously and lovingly teach the truth and defend it. Peter speaks of this exuberant joy in the free granting of God's righteousness that's proven amidst affliction. You know that you were born into sinfulness. Psalm 51, 5. David says, I was conceived in sin. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart of man is wicked. But see, the wicked heart, because it is wicked, declares that it's not wicked. And sadly, this has permeated the church to the point that now, rather than helping people understand that their wickedness must be overcome, instead what they're told is, no, you need higher self-esteem. 
an abandonment of God's anthropology for one that would make a pastor more popular. It's coming. In Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Is that what you want for your sons, men? Your daughters? What you find gladness, joy in your own heart as your children begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness, knowing that then they will be satisfied. You see, that very passage alone is enough. That passage alone is enough for you and me to be willing to genuinely subject ourselves to the truth of God and to hold our children accountable to it. Children begin to show this passion for unrighteousness from the time they can communicate. The longer you wait to address that, the more you are affirming that unrighteousness. Any expression of unrighteousness that goes unaddressed is one step in training a child to believe that unrighteousness is righteousness. I learned from C.J. Mahaney a number of years, even before I had children, that the motive in discipline with children must be to explain the gospel. There must be an effort to find a window of opportunity to explain that the gospel not only saves someone from their sins and the eternal consequence, but it saves them from slavery to that sin. But the father who doesn't take every opportunity to address it with adhering to biblical mandates to provide discipline that hurts. He is abandoning not only God, but His child. And the result will be that He will have no joy in that child. Those are painful things, I, I know. But the reality is that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And the opposite is true as well. Those who do not hunger and thirst after righteousness will find temporary satisfaction in something, but it won't ultimately be satisfying. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness as over against wickedness is what Christ provided on the cross. You see this in Romans 3. In Romans 1.18, we are told that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If you have young children, I would say don't wait. Don't wait to begin to communicate that truth. It has to be now. If you have older children, trust God that He very well will use you if you will confess failures. I am in the practice of confessing my failures not just to my wife, but to my children. A lack of willingness to address Expressions of unrighteousness is to approve it. Point number one was a father's joy in his child's righteousness. Nothing is more important than this. But of equal importance is a father's joy in his child's wisdom. You see, throughout the Proverbs, and I read many to you last week, these couplets that expose the, the benefit, the eternal benefit of righteousness as over against the eternal damnation of wickedness. 
see it over and over and over again throughout the Proverbs, and I read many of those to you last week. This morning, I want you to see a father's joy in his child's wisdom. The Scripture certainly declares, much to the chagrin of the watered-down false gospel church today, that children are born into foolishness. Now, you, There are many children you can't tell that to, but you should. In the right context, I was never told that as a child. I was never told that my foolish conduct was an exhibition of my foolish heart. I wish someone had told me that. The proverb is clear. There will be no joy for the father who does not address the foolishness of his child's heart. Listen to this. Proverbs 17.21 He who sires a fool does so to his sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. Parents, fathers in particular, when you let foolishness go unaddressed and you even affirm it with a soft voice and a sweet touch, you can expect that you will not find joy in that child. I am a living example of that. I was a constant misery to my mother. not funny <laughs> I I remember my mother when I was I think 12 10 or 12 I was sitting on the couch watching TV my mom and my sister were in the kitchen and I don't think she well, obviously she didn't know that I heard her but she my mom said well I love him but sometimes I can hardly believe he's my son I was a terrible kid and a big part of it was that I was so convincingly sweet I was quite the Pharisee. You know, for the most part, the authorities at school and in other places really enjoyed my presence. But I was really good at doing things in such a way that was so deceptive. Why? Because I've been told most of my life, you know, it's just a stage. You'll get over it. You'll get past it. And then one time, I remember when I was in junior high, the school counselor was telling someone else, boy, that Todd, he's really turned over a new leaf. And I'm going, got him fooled. You know, just a few nice words here and there with a constant underlying devotion to wickedness is all it takes to persuade some people who have no interest in being discerning or actually loving and speaking the truth in love. They just want popularity to exist between most parties. The father's joy is found in his child's wisdom, but his sadness is found in his foolishness. I think it would be helpful for many parents to hear that the time to start is now. Start addressing every single expression of foolishness. Knowing that ultimately foolishness leads to destruction. Listen to this in Proverbs 15.20. A wise son makes a father glad. And you might expect the proverb here to move into some expression of what the foolish son does to his dad, but no. It says, but a foolish man despises his mother. Why? Lack of discipline. A lack of love, saturated discipline. Mark it down, be certain. That a lack of godly discipline, a lack of a call to righteousness, a lack of a call to wisdom, 
in the heart of a child will certainly result in a child despising his mother. You can count on it. You can count on it. He shows it from the early months of his life in his willingness to rebel. And the mother who refuses to deal with it can expect that that child will one day, initially deceptively, he will despise his mother and ultimately he will be brash and show it publicly. It's only a matter of time. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. It's really a, a twofold message. And do you know, I haven't even mentioned this, the context of this passage is for children. If you look at this proverb, he's not talking here to fathers. He's talking to children and how they might honor their fathers, how they might honor their parents. But then he slips this in, and it is a call for a father to recognize the fact that he actually does have influence on his children. Proverbs 23, 15, My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad, and my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. I don't think it's any secret that when a child speaks up foolishly, his father <laughs> is sad. He might even be embarrassed or shamed by foolish talk. On the other hand, when he says something that, it's, that is expressive of God's character, God's nature, God's attributes, the heart of the man who longs for righteousness himself leaps with joy. It bursts with exuberant joy. He's glad to hear and think and believe that his child is beginning to reflect a right understanding of the character of God and the kindness of God. He shows wisdom. His father experiences gladness. Proverbs 10.1, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is sorrow to his mother. Proverbs 10.8, the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. You get the connection? So for the parent who refuses to address the rebellion, to refuse, who refuses to correct the rebellion, the foolishness, then ultimately they're cultivating babbling, unrighteousness, wickedness, foolishness that will certainly result in ruin. And the, the point here in that it's near, the word near, is that it's around the corner. It is imminent. The, the, the wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of fools brings ruin near. Proverbs 10.23, doing wrong, listen to this, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. And children are trained to believe this when they're not trained to believe otherwise. Let me say it again. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. Proverbs 11.29, whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind. You get that picture, don't you? And the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. Foolishness is, is such utter wretchedness that Jesus in Matthew 5.22 says, Whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So the person who falsely accuses someone of foolishness doesn't realize what he's doing. He doesn't realize the seriousness of the false accusation. To call someone a fool, an empty head, raka, is to bring about God's wrath upon oneself when it's a false accusation. That's how heavy and serious foolishness is. 
Proverbs 13, 1, a wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. What is it? Think of it. What is a son to do if his father doesn't provide discipline? There's nothing to reject, and yet he still becomes a fool. So who's to blame when the father turns out to not be glad? When he becomes overcome with sadness and he looks back and he says, I should have obeyed the commands of Scripture. I should have learned to gently, lovingly, graciously bring about discipline in my child's life and I would be experiencing gladness in this day. Proverbs 13, 20, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. This is not difficult to teach to children. Spend time being influenced by ungodly, foolish people, and you will be harming yourself ultimately. On the other hand, subject yourself to wise people. Now, let me be clear about what he's not saying. He's not saying pretend to subject yourself to wise people. Seek counsel and then reject it when you don't like what you hear. A person who subjects himself to wise people and gleans wisdom from wise people is going to show wisdom in his own life. He's going to be effectively ready and able to nurture wisdom in his child's life. But the person who says, oh, it's just a stage, he'll get past it. You know, the person who says, well, he's just four months old. He's just eight months old. He's just a year old. Come on, he's just two. Come on, he's just four. Come on, he's just eight. I mean, come on, he's only 12. Come on, he's only 50. You get the point? <laughs> now is the time. Now is the time. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. You can see how that could help a man want to nurture wisdom in his child that he would experience gladness as he begins to see and even praise and nurture wisdom in his child when when wisdom shows itself to draw it out to graciously and humbly praise those expressions of wisdom but when foolishness is not addressed it's approved when foolishness shows itself and a parent doesn't address it he's proving it Proverbs 17.10 A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Proverbs 26.11 Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. You get the twist here? See, the person who goes back to his folly, he goes back to his folly, he rejects the warnings of godly, wise people, and he goes back to his foolishness. It is like the very ugly, picturesque presentation given to us here in a dog who returns to his vomit. And if you've ever seen that, I have. It's sick. And you go, what's wrong with this dog? <laughs> oh, he's a dog. Maybe people have looked at us in our own willingness to return to our foolishness and said, what's wrong with him? Well, they can't say you're a dog. The wise man, the man who longs for his children to be wise, will experience gladness of heart if he will nurture wisdom, if he will address foolishness in his child's heart. It must be addressed. But then this, I want to read it again. This is verse 12 of Proverbs 26. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? You get the point of that question? 
the guy who just thinks he's got it sewn up. Despite the foolish expressions of his child's mouth, he considers himself to be wise. This is how he receives counsel. This is what he does. Well, I hear this person saying this. I hear this person saying this. And I hear this person saying this. But ultimately, I'm the decision maker. It's not how Christianity works. That's not how it works. There must be a humble willingness to say, we need help. We hold in our hands a soul, an eternal soul, who is going to mostly and most greatly be influenced by us. And no, I don't have it sewn up. Let me just tell you, and I'm speaking as, as me <laughs> right now, I don't have it sewn up. And if you know any one of my five children, you may have seen expressions of that. I need your assistance. You need my assistance. We need each other's assistance, no matter what the age of our children. A willingness to call one another to the truth of the Scripture that a glad father will experience gladness because he has nurtured and cultivated wisdom in his child's heart. Let me say this at this point. What we are not talking about is a heavy-handed willingness to angrily and pridefully tell your children that they're stupid. You yourself, if, if you or I operate that way, we are showing a lack of wisdom. That it's foolishness to operate that way. We're not talking about mandated behavior change. Or behavior modification. We're talking about displaying wisdom with having the right timing. And knowing when and how to address what needs to be addressed. Proverbs 1 beginning with verse 1. This is really the um, what we might call the prologue of the Proverbs, the introduction. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction. That's why we have the Proverbs. Now, you could be a good moralist and not even a believer in Jesus Christ and adhere to most of the Proverbs. They're not going to get you saved. But the point of the Proverbs is to show us the axiomatic realities of how parenting and life work. And a willingness to subject ourselves to these truths, knowing that a father, in his loving desire for his son's righteousness, spoke them to him, knowing that they would protect him from much travesty through foolish conduct and foolish speech. The proverb goes on to say, uh, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, quote for you a very foolish statement, just to be helpful in this regard. You ever heard somebody say this? Oh, I know the Bible says to fear God, but it doesn't mean fear. It means reverence and awe. That's a foolish statement, unless it is qualified with the fact that it also means fear. Yes, it means reverence and awe, but it also means fear. How could fear not mean fear? We haven't been given a spirit of fear, a spirit of timidity. Paul tells Timothy, Paul's talking about fear of people. He's not saying you haven't been given a spirit of fear for God. Otherwise, it would be contradictory for God to require fear of God. 
And like I told you last week, the one who fears God is the one whom God protects from that which brings fear. The fact that God's wrath will be poured out against the ungodly and the unrighteous and the unwise is something against which God protects the child who fears him. Proverbs 1.20 Wisdom shouts in the street. That's a picture, isn't it? Wisdom shouts in the street. The point is it's available. Maybe you're on the wrong street. If you've got a child that's on the wrong street, put them on the right street. Help them avoid being in the wrong place where wisdom doesn't shout. The point is it's available. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. The point is that wisdom is obvious. Wise conduct, wise speech is obvious. Foolish speech and foolish conduct is obvious. But guess what happens when someone exchanges the natural for the unnatural, the normal for the abnormal? You know what happens? They start to see things that are foolish and think they're wise. And they say the most ridiculous things. I think I told you years ago when I was a young man in college riding a motorcycle that I had persuaded myself to believe that although I typically drove very, very fast with not much clothing on, uh, that it would be easy for me to just kind of jump into the median if I thought there was danger. I believed that. It's hard for me to imagine that the person who is in this body today would say such a thing. But I did, and I meant it. I actually said those words. I'm not making this up. I can remember going down the freeway 100 plus miles an hour thinking, there's grass, soft, I'll jump. So listen, I'm not talking to you about something that I've not been guilty of. I was 19 at the time. Don't let someone in whose life you have influence become 19 and and exhibit that level of foolishness. Start now. At the head of the noisy streets, wisdom cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? There's so much here in this proverb, we don't have time to read it all, but listen to the last verse. Verse 33, Proverbs 1. But, now this is where God has said that he, la- he will laugh at the calamity of those who reject wisdom. And then he says, but he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. You can have confidence that God will protect you from evil if you reject your own foolish heart and instill wisdom in those in whose lives you have influence, particularly your children. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You know, we are told in Scripture that God blinds the eyes of those who pursue darkness. Their eyes are blinded. And think of it. There comes a time where an effort to persuade someone out of the darkness who thinks that the darkness has been covered, 
for that person, you are past the point of an ability to influence them with words and the time is to pray. To pray fervently and fast. Make it a serious endeavor to be effectively involved in the life of a person who says foolish things and they're well past 8, 9, 10 years old. Be willing to go before the Lord. If your trust in God has been massively deficient, correct that. And prove your belief in His sovereign grace by becoming a person of prayer. By being devoted to legitimate, God-centered, God-believing prayer. As I mentioned in my email, now is no time to be trifling with a small God who is not sovereign. That God will not help you with what's coming in our culture. You will only be frustrated and miserable and angry at those who commit things that you don't like. But if you actually believe God is sovereign over all the details, it changes everything. You know that ultimately things are not just about you, it's about God's glory. And He's using you to be humbled in the face of having to deal with things that you don't like. He's very likely forcing you into a scenario where you have to extend grace to those who hate you just like God did for you when you hated Him. It's a beautiful picture. And we can thank Him for the privilege and the opportunity. But God has darkened the hearts of those who darken their own hearts. The call upon our lives is one to wisdom. And men, especially for you, if you yet have influence on a son, whether it's a biological son or a spiritual son, then I hope you do have spiritual sons. The call in your life today is to know that you will, you can, you certainly will have gladness of heart if you will instill wisdom in your children's hearts. You know, David's son, Amnon, in Second uh, Samuel, develops an idolatrous attraction for his sister. You know the story, many of you. This is Tamar. Amnon pretends to be sick. He tricks his father into sending Tamar to him. He rapes her. He then despises her. And he sends her away. In defense of her, their brother Absalom vows to kill him. He waits patiently but wickedly for two years and tricks their father, David, into having Amnon and other of his sons accompany him to a time of shearing sheep. David says, but why do you need Amnon for that? And the text doesn't explain why, but somehow Absalom persuaded David to believe that Amnon would be helpful along with their other brothers. Absalom kills Amnon, kills David's other sons. He then flees to a foreign land to escape justice. In 2 Samuel 14.33, Absalom comes to the king. He prostrates himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kisses him. And so there seems to be a rekindling and maybe even some measure of reconciliation. 2 Samuel 15.1 records, Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. 
Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In the manner Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment, so Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Right out from underneath his father, David. Absalom effectively steals the kingdom from his father. And then David flees in fear for his own life. Battle ensues, and eventually Absalom, while fleeing from David's men, runs into a low-hanging thick set of branches from an oak tree. He gets clotheslined and trapped while he's still alive. Joab, the king's servant, runs three spears through his heart. Chapter 18, verse 33 tells us the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, O my son, Absalom, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Tragically, David now expresses great sorrow over the loss of his son to the point that although the battle has been won against Absalom and his men, he does nothing to praise the men who won that battle, but instead he just laments over the loss of his son, and so he loses respect from the men under his authority. So much more to this, but you can see how an idolatrous view and focus upon one's children can lead to inexpressibly immeasurable tragedy. It's idolatry of his own son. Second Samuel 12, verse 11, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household, the Lord says to David. I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And this happened with Absalom. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin and you shall not die. So there's hope. See, this is, this is really where you and I should start the focus if we're looking at a scenario where we think it's hopeless. Now the proverb says, discipline your children while there's still hope. You know, get it right. Learn to lovingly, graciously address with some measure of loving severity the sins of your small children's life because one day there will be no hope for you to do that. But here for David, Nathan assures him your sins have been forgiven, but there are consequences. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, however, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. See, this was a prophecy. The Lord, through Nathan, was helping David, trying to help David understand there are going to be consequences for what you've done. And those consequences certainly came in great form.
And you see David's impact on Solomon. I read to you last week from 1 Kings 3, verse 5. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, ask what you wish me to give you. And what did he ask for? He asked for wisdom. And did he get it? Yeah. The Scripture says he was the wisest man of all time, and yet he proved to be a fool. Did he not see what his father brought upon him and his brothers? And the division and the hatred and the animosity, did he not observe that? Of course he observed it, but clearly he didn't learn from it to the degree that he should have. Solomon was wise, and yet he exhibited great foolishness because he rejected the wisdom that once made his father's heart glad. So, if you are a son, whether biologically or spiritually, or both, endeavor to know the person of Jesus Christ and not only to be like Him, but to know Him so well that you may genuinely help others to know Him well. And you will make your Father's heart glad. As I said, this passage really ultimately is for children who would make their fathers glad. Specifically, know the righteousness of Christ and know the wisdom of Christ and you will make your Father glad. If you're a father whether biologically or spiritually or both, don't diminish the significance of that role. Point your sons and your daughters to Jesus Christ. Know Him and make Him known. Be taught well. Don't dismiss the significance of the New Testament call to sit under the sound teaching of a shepherd who will feed and protect you. Don't Replace that with internet theology, no matter how good it is. You cannot escape the reality that God has called every Christian to be shepherded unto the chief shepherd by a shepherd in this earthly lifetime. And as I said to you earlier, as we will endeavor to go into Second Peter, one of the things we're going to see is that false teachers abound and they are very, very good pretenders. The internet pastor is not your pastor. In our church, you need a family group. You need a shepherd who's going to guide you and guard you and protect you and help you think through the difficulties of what it is to shepherd your own children unto a righteous and wise life. If you're lamenting this morning as David did over Absalom, lamenting over a broken relationship or a breaking relationship with a son or a daughter, Seek counsel from a family group shepherd. Trust the Lord in His blueprint for how this works. If you've failed, and all of us have, trust in God's grace and His kindness. There are, there are men in our church who I've seen experience restored relationships with their children because they've humbled themselves and they've sought counsel. Seek counsel. Seek wisdom. Acknowledge where you've fallen short rather than being committed to the idea that this somehow is your children's fault. As I said last week, I think there's probably nothing more prideful than the parent who says, I raised my children in the Lord and I just don't know what happened. Not you, not I, not anyone has exhibited flawless parenting and therefore we have no right to that statement. 
Somewhere along the way, there has been a chink in the armor. And yes, we would say it is by God's grace if our children turn out to be righteous and wise. It is His grace by which they turn out to be righteous and wise. And yet, the parent who says, I don't get it, I did everything right, he has no right to that statement. But if he or she will humble himself or herself before the God of grace, he or she might just be amazed at what the Lord will do. We put a lot of emphasis on God's sovereignty, and we should, because the Bible emphasizes it over and over and over. But just as I've told you many times, the declarations of the Bible are no less important than the commands of the Bible. And where you and I have fallen short, it must be our passion to declare before the Lord and before the church that we've fallen short. We must ask for help. We must be humble. We must be candid. We must be willing to say that I blew it with anger or I blew it with bitterness or I blew it with hypocrisy. Whatever it is, be honest and encourage others to be honest. I suggest to you that the more humble and honest you are, the more humble and honest your spouse will be. The more humble and honest you and your spouse are, the more humble and honest those around you will be. The more humble and honest our church is when it comes to experiencing the joy, the gladness of seeing our children become righteous and wise, the greater impact we will have on this lost and dying community. But if you or I or any one of us is willing to rigidly stand firm in opposition to this axiomatic reality that the righteousness and the wisdom of a child leads to the gladness of his father's heart and the unrighteousness and the foolishness of a child's heart leads to him despising his mother. If any one of us is willing to reject that axiomatic truth, and we break down our ability to minister effectively and evangelistically to a lost and dying world. But there is hope. There is hope. We see that certain hope in Nathan's words to David. Your sins are covered. Can you not, as a result of the fact that your sins are covered, be willing to be humble instead of prideful? Can you not be willing to say, I'm going to be the person who humbles myself and is willing to examine my own life and my own heart. I suggest that the person who is convinced that, that this is not an axiomatic truth will show that in his or her parenting. On the other hand, the one who is convinced it is true will humble himself or herself. And the result will be that we will have a far-reaching impact on this community. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the many kindnesses You've shown to us. We plead with You in this very moment to give us a spirit of unity where we, all of us, myself included, have rebelled against Your Word, against Your precepts, against Your heart. We acknowledge that You've shown us much grace. We think of Your indictment upon Israel who had called light darkness and called darkness light. And Father, we plead with You to expose those interests in our own heart, those wanderings of our own heart to abandon truth for the sake of pride. I pray that You'd humble us. I pray that You'd humble all of us 
and that the result would be your glory would be greatly on display and we therefore would have a massive impact on a community that does not love Christ. We ask these things in His name. Amen.